The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And today we are welcoming Alan Sanders from the Wilder Ride podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? Hello! Hi. Welcome. <laughs> yes, people, we know a few weeks ago we had a Wilder Ride host. We have another Wilder Ride host. Yes, the other one. Yes. The shorter, smaller, cuter one. <laughs> I will leave that to you and Walt to battle out. I will not choose sides on who is cuter. Because <laughs> Eric is equitable. I'm sorry. His wife picks him. My wife picks me. And I guess that's okay. So we are at uh, minute 19 here in Escape from New York Minute. And it starts out with Hauk reading to Snake, Snake's bio. And it ends with Hauk telling Snake about something that happened to a small jet. So, uh, how can Snake meeting for the first time in yesterday's minute and uh, only very briefly. So now we really start to get a, a dynamic form between these two. And as I said, we get we start finally getting some backstory for Snake. You don't get a lot of backstory for Snake in this movie, and it's 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 pretty much all given in this minute actually. So he is a lieutenant in the special forces. He had two Purple Hearts, one in Leningrad and Siberia. And he is the youngest man to be decorated by the president, which I must say, when I was a kid watching this movie, uh, the way kids' brains sometimes process information they don't quite understand, I thought that that meant he personally knew the president and, like, Mm. they were friends, which which then to my, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old brain watching this movie added a whole other dimension to this movie that actually does not exist at all. (laughs) Well, and the question I was wondering about was... I don't think it's the same president that we actually see in this movie because he makes a comment about which president. Like, he doesn't know who they're talking about. Or he has disavowed any knowledge if he is the same one uh, because of whatever whatever he went through that he no longer wants to acknowledge his part in this world. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I never thought, even considered that, that it was maybe the previous president is the one that decorated him. Or even two previous, however many years ago it was. I mean, I, the reason I think that, and because I do know the movie, I know we're going to try to stick to this minute, but it, because you mentioned Leningrad in Siberia, which is obviously Russia, but later they're talking about mi- meeting with Chinese officials, almost like it's a separate war or something else, as if there was a previous war, and now there's a new one, and he wants nothing to do with it. He, he, got his, he did his time, he's disenfranchised with whatever background he had or whatever, wherever the country's gone, and doesn't even want to acknowledge this current president. Well, I guess I wonder if World War III, which is, which is where all the poison gas came from, that's driving everybody crazy, that, that have the battles he's in, I wonder, is World War III itself still raging on? Or like you say, has World War III ended and now there's World War IV or, or whatever the war is called? Some kind of a new conflict? It could be, and again, I'd acknowledge, I don't think we have any one way or the other. It could very well be 
that this president he admired at one point in time, and now that they're moving into a new theater of operations and continuing the quote-unquote war quagmire that we're, we're, we're still in, I mean, we've got, uh, you know, Hauk says, you know, we're still at war. Um, it could very well be that this is such a protracted war that what was once the wide-eyed, patriotic, young Snake Plissken is now the disenfranchised anti-hero who doesn't care about this new version of, of, of America. He fought for the one that he thought he was fighting for. Now it's a different one, and he wants nothing to do with it. Right, and as we've mentioned in, in previous minutes, um, the the novel goes into a lot of the... the a lot more backstory for Snake that the movie does not go into. And I think, again, we've, we've talked a lot about it's it works for the movie not knowing all the backstory that the book gives. The book gets into how he lost the eye and why he gets pissed at the government and why he doesn't care anymore. And it's, it's you know, fine to have, but I think in the in the movie, the way the movie works, it's so much better having him much more mysterious. We basically, this is all we get for his bio, he went, he robbed a bank, and it's just, it does the job. It's good enough for the movie. We don't really need anything else, you know? And here's what the problem with novelizations, too. I don't, I know Kurt Russell is the one who came up with the idea of the eye patch. Right. So then someone then had to say, oh, crap, now i got to come up with the backstory for the book because Kurt Russell, the actor, decided this would look cool. I know this is going back, but since you guys are, are the experts of this, I had a problem in my mind going back because I watched the whole movie uh, to get ready for just these minutes. When he is first, when Kurt Russell's character, when Snake Plissken first arrives, and you hear, you know, the uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis telling all those directions of following the orange line, and he's obviously being taken in for processing, you hear somebody say, wait a minute, it sounds like Hauk. So it's almost like there's a time jumble here, because then we later see Hauk go on a mission and then come back. So do you know, was that Hauk's voice, and is it just out of order, or... D- does John Carpenter leave us thinking that we're sort of sh- we shift back in time when we go and see how go on his mission, and then we catch back up to how wanting to talk to Pliskin right away? Well, let's lift the- let's lift the curtain for the l- listeners because as we're recording these minutes, our our first our pilot episode just dropped, so you can figure out the math in your head of uh, how long we take in between recording and posting episodes. So Alan wouldn't have been able to hear the episode that all you listeners have already heard, where this specific issue came up and is there a time jump here are, are these two things happening simultaneously was that Hauk? and we couldn't really come to a consensus right molly no i i think it's uh i mean i kind of lean towards that it, there isn't a time jump now that i'm in, <laughs> in going back in time i'm not sure what i said at the, <laughs> at the time but <laughs> but i'm gonna say in this moment that i'm i'm gonna say that that there isn't. And the reason why I say that is that we don't have any other precedent for time jump in the rest of the movie. So it'd be very weird to just have this slight discontinuity without any other precedent in the rest of the flick. So I'm going to say that someone is, is pausing him in this moment. And even though we're logistically seeing, you know, him go inside of Manhattan, how meaning how go in and come back. Um, I'm just going to roll with it. It's, it's, it's a linear timeline. See, I want to go that way, but I've listened to it with headphones. It's Hauk's voiceover that's saying, wait a minute. It, it, it's, it's Lee Van Cleef or someone that sounds so much like him. I wonder why John Carpenter would have used that voice. Why not somebody so much more distinctly different? 
So I always thought, I should say always, when I was getting ready for this, I, I, I finally said to myself, it had to be where either it's edited out of order and John Carpenter liked it that way and it didn't matter because we didn't see the actor, or it's a time jump, in which case you've already decided you don't like that. So whatever, whichever way you decide to go. But it certainly sounds somebody an awful lot like Lee Van Cleef calling to him out of the, uh, from off screen. We can't see the person that's, that's addressing him. Just something to think about, because this is obviously the room he's being called into, because he's got the exact same look and everything. You see his silhouette a minute before where the guards are saying, I'll be okay. So it just feels like it's either an edit out of order, or we were supposed to see everything was sort of like the time, what happened before this meeting, as if it's sort of a flashback remembrance, but poorly transitioned. All right, I'm going to try to come up with a no-prize explanation right here off the top of my head, that because... You're saying that it, it must be Lee Van Cleef's voice. I'm going to say that it, it was Hauk. He did say hold it, but he didn't say what his name was. Siskin, let's say, doesn't know, what it, doesn't know his face. He's never met him in person before. Hauk stops him, says hold it, does something that has nothing at all to do with him going in and meeting uh, Romero like we did in the episodes last week. Brings him in then, sits down. Then once he says his name, I'm Bob Hauk, the police commissioner, Pliskin says, Bob Hauk. So it works whether he has already seen his face five minutes ago, movie time or not, because now it's like, oh, all right, this is Bob Hauk. Whether or not he stopped him before or not, it works either way. We'll go with that for the sake of not like talking about every other minute but this one. <laughs> <laughs> it just bugged me because I did listen so intently and I was like, why? why is he calling him into his office? But then we have this whole, you know, seven or eight minutes worth of him taking the taking the two choppers, going in, finding the, the capsule, then getting approached by the little weasel dude and find out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, get out of here. You got 30 seconds, comes back. And next thing you know, he's meeting with Pliskin in his office. Yeah. And I think another thing that, also might play into the fact that that it was not a time jump is that we went through last week that there's a whole scene in the script that was completely eliminated before this where there's a sadistic guard who's really screwing with snake and that was not that was completely removed so when the script was being written that was there though and so that would put even more time in between snake walking down the hallway and then coming into hauk's office Oh, you know, and it could very well be the explanation is Hauk wanted to have this guy detained with this other guard while he was because normally maybe he meets with everybody, but he knew he had to go fly out. And so what we're missing is what what was happening simultaneously to the mission is that that scene that was taken out. Yeah, sure. So while we talk about Hauk and because we already mentioned the book giving lots of backstory that a movie doesn't have. There's some interesting factoid here about Hauk that adds uh, something to his character that, again, this is not even remotely alluded to in the movie. You would have no idea about this if you don't read the book. First of all, I found it interesting that he says he's police commissioner and not warden, which I think we've been referring to him as actually until this minute. So Mm -hmm. he's actually the police commissioner. His title is not warden. But in the book, his son is actually in the prison. And one of the main reasons Hauk took the job was to try to find him in the prison and actually at one point goes into the prison to try to find him. At this point, so much time has passed, he's given up trying to find his son. But 
in the scene when Snake is getting his gear ready, which we'll get to later on in another episode this week, Hauk actually asks Snake to keep a lookout for his son. And he says that his son has his last name, Hauk, tattooed on his hand, so that's how he knows to look for him. And now at a later minute in this movie, in a little while from now, there's going to be a payoff of this subplot, which actually is referred to in the movie, despite the fact the setup's not there at all, so you won't even understand it. And I'm going to keep everyone in suspense of what that payoff is when we get there. So I can go more in-depth into that. I don't want to spoil the surprise. But again, we get something else here where a book giving all this backstory to one of our major characters. We have no clue about it if we just watch the movie. Is is he the wrestler? Is that the payoff? <laughs> <laughs> he is not the wrestler. I will say that. <laughs> So Snake's looking around the office as Hawk, Hawk talks to him. Uh, it reminded me of my kids when I try to talk to my kids and they're not paying attention. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, he's just, you know, he's just not looking at him. He's not listening. He does not care what he says. And I'll say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I've, I've been there, Hawk. And we follow up Hawk's impressive display of old school guns and pistols on the one wall from last week with look at what he's got in his wall behind Snake. All kinds of swords and sabers. Yeah, and definitely kind of almost in a military style of, of display. you got the crossed smaller swords or, or sabers with, uh, like I guess, almost like a... It looks like sort of a... What do you call it? Like a machete sort of style sword or more of like a cutlass. And it, yeah, definitely a, a collection of blades, but it's in a way of displaying it in terms of look at my collection of almost military style swords. I love the arsenal, man. I think it's great. Um, I was talking in a previous minute about this is the most masculine office I've ever seen. And I mean, the other thing about this, speaking of office decor, is I love how the American flag is just over, well, to our vantage point, it'd be just over his right shoulder, Snake's right shoulder. So I love how this whole, these three minutes of all of this just disappointment and democracy, you know, on on Snake's part, and you've got an American flag. An American flag over his shoulder. I think it's wonderful. Well, certainly, what I was going to suggest about the the style of of, of Kurt Russell's character, and you you mentioned Eric about your kids. What I loved is because he did have that sense of not respecting authority. That's that's the kind of look, and it says so much about his character. When you're hearing these accolades of a soldier in the army who was selected for the special forces, earned two Purple Hearts in combat. I mean, you're thinking those are highly decorated, patriotic, militaristic kind of accolades. And here's a guy who could not care less that he was in front of this guy hearing his record as if he was describing somebody that he he has long since forgotten. And the body language sells that to me instantaneously. He has given up on, quote, authority and authority figures and and patriotism as far as, as it looks right here. Yeah, it also kind of looks like going back to the uh, discussion of, of kids in authority. It looks like he's in the principal's office. He totally seems like a a teenage bad boy who's been hauled in and is you know being read the riot act. Yeah, and Hauk represents the government. You know, I mean, there's there's a John Carpenter quote when when talking about this movie years ago. He said, "I truly have a problem with authority, and the authorities are who screwed Snake up." The authorities are the reason, a.k.a. the government, are the reason why Snake is the way he is. And that's who Hauk is personifying now to Snake at this moment. So he's just, you know, this is he's he's treating Hauk the way that he views, with a big G, the government, with a big A, authority now. 
I was just going to say, you know, this is one to me, this is one of my favorite lines of the movie with Hauk saying, I'm ready to kick your ass out of the World War hero. For two reasons. One, just I, I love the line. I just love the way he does it. But he he's saying it as Snake clearly doesn't give a shit. You know, like, why does ha- does Hauk really think Snake cares? I mean, he's going to prison. He's going to Manhattan prison. His life is done. Snake cares that Hauk wants to kick his ass out of the world? Well, and that probably would work for other people, but it's not working on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to say is I like, it's a, it's a John Carpenter thing, I love this voyeuristic camera placement as if we're somehow almost in the room eavesdropping. I love the low camera placement. It's not from the point of view of Kurt Russell. It's a third-party person on the corner of the desk whenever it's looking at Hauk. And then it comes from over, but not quite, Hauk's perspective when we're looking at Snake. So we don't get a POV shot. We get like we're a third person sort of like moving from one side of the desk to the other until we get a two-shot where we literally get, which will be in the next minute, I think, we get almost profile of them squaring off at each other. I mean, I just the, the camera work is just really interesting in terms of where he places it. Plus, you got a really dimly lit office with lots of shadow and and some highlight. And it not your typical quote unquote government office with your stark fluorescent lighting and everything, you know, all bright and shiny and dull and, and, and antiseptic. It's a it's a very dark and 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 in shadow, almost as if it's personifying we now have a government that operates in shadow. We don't operate with transparency or in the light. Yeah, that is a great point. The, 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 the tops of their heads are in shadow, partially partially because of the angle of the camera. And yeah, I, I work for a government agency, and I will say that everyone's office is really bright. <laughs> <laughs> There's, nobody's office is lit like this. No. No, this is... <laughs> this is a very dark and very uh and it's done on purpose it creates a mood um it it does not give us a sense that there is a bright light shining on either one of these characters so i don't trust hauk already especially when he leans back in his chair and his eyes almost disappear in shadow it's very much an ominous lighting design for the scene i do enjoy that he just has cigarettes sitting out on his desk and there's so much characterization that gets done here in these three minutes. To, to and, and again, you know, as Eric was saying, we really don't get a whole ton of context about, you know, who Snake is. In fact, this podcast is probably giving more context to his character than, you know, anybody probably really knows who's a fan of the movie who hasn't read the novel at all. But I love that there's just just a thing of cigarettes sitting out, which is, I think, one, indicative of the time of when this was actually made. And two, I love the fact he just helps himself to one. Which is just such a, like, a completely, like, you know, big, bald move. Well, the, again, lack of, uh, lack of respect of authority. I don't care. It's your desk. It's your possessions. It's your stuff. I'm going to help myself. So, Hauk's got an interesting offer for Snake here. He's offering him a full pardon. Now, we don't find out in this minute what he has to do to get that full pardon, but he's he's already got the piece of paper printed out, ready to go. He plops it right in front of him. And this is interesting because I I don't know how many people show up to Manhattan prison and get the offer of a potential full pardon here. So I, I, I wonder what he's going to have to do to get the full pardon. Indeed. Indeed. Now, and here's something interesting, and I had to go back a couple of times. I, for some reason in my head, 
heard, which he doesn't say, a full presidential pardon. Or I was like, well, wait a minute, the president's gone. How is this? And I thought that was a problem. Then he realizes it's just a full pardon. But who would be able to grant, certainly not the police commissioner, so when did, when did that transpire? Who, what executive in the branch of government would have had the authority to sign off on a, a prisoner who's been exiled, basically, to this New York facility? Who, if it's not the president, who would have signed it? Because I don't think the police commissioner has that authority. Was, he was on the phone with the vice president in a previous minute. It's got to be from that. Yeah, that would be my assessment as well. I guess, but then they, and, and maybe we just have to overlook the fact that did they invoke the 25th Amendment? Do they feel like the vice president is now in charge? Has to be. I mean, it, I mean, the president, this has to qualify as, uh, I don't know the exact language off the top of my head, but in- incapacitated is, or, or something along those lines is, is what's in the Constitution, correct? Right. Well, the inability to discharge the duties, whether it's because he's okay. going under surgery or because the, enough of the cabinet decides to vote in incompetence. But if there needs to be a, a cabinet vote. You need to have all of the secretaries come through and have a majority vote to invoke the 25th Amendment. And then you've got to have the vice president sworn in for whatever temporary time frame until the president is either confirmed dead or uh, regains the trust or is, re- is returned. Feels like there's a lot of stuff that happened behind the scenes in a very quick, short, in a very short period of time to create the legal paperwork to then all of a sudden create a quick printout document that says, "Here's your pardon." Okay, so then wait. So now let's since we're getting into civics lessons uh, territory, <laughs> help me out then. If that's if that's the case, so when Ronald Reagan was shot in the early '80s, and George Bush had to run the country as Reagan was being operated on. He did not automatically assume the duties. They actually had to procedurally have the cabinet vote to have him act as president. There's, there's no way. For any presidential duties, yeah, they would have had to have that vote. It could have happened very, very quickly via conference call or whatever. But if there had been at that exact, let's just say, let's play what if, an exact moment where that required, let's say, a presidential signature for a peace treaty that had to be signed, George W. Bush could uh, George H.W. Bush could not have signed it until they had officially invoked him as president of the United States. Vice president allows him to preside over the Senate. He's the presiding official of the Senate, but that doesn't make him immediately the president just because the president's incapacitated. There still needs to be a process followed. Very interesting. Okay, so then I think, I think that that happened behind the scenes because with Hauk on the phone with the vice president earlier in the movie... And I believe it's the Secretary of State is the other person who's in the room with him when he gets on the phone. That means things are already working down in Washington, D.C. to deal with making sure that there is a proper transfer of power. And so it seems to me that, that, that the vice president either has done one of two things. They have temporarily assumed presidential power legally, and so they're the one, and he, he or she signed off on the pardon, or... The vice president said, well, if he gets the president out, I will vouch for the fact that the president will give him a pardon. My issue when I was younger, I just bought it hook, line and sinker. But when you watch it older, I don't trust Hauk at all that this is a legit. Maybe I've seen too many episodes of 24 as well, but (laughs) I immediately distrusted that this was a legitimate uh, pardon, that it was something he doctored up knowing full well if if this works. I'm still going to I'm going to still send him to prison after I'm going to cut to rip this up and pretend it never happened. That, that's my impression at this very moment in the movie. I OK. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think there's a vibe here that Hauk is quite distrustful because he's a company man. So he's going to do whatever he needs to do to get the job done. So I, I think I never doubted the pardon, but he is shady. And as we're going to see in future minutes, he definitely, you know, puts a, another bind on Snake here, you know, biologically. So it isn't just about like, hey, dude, you know, we're going to track you, go in, come out. Like he give, he definitely gives him a, a pretty uh, a lethal incentive on the side to ensure that he, he is properly motivated. So um, I think that, you know, this and, it, and I think Lee Van Cleef just naturally, biologically just plays shady. <laughs> you know, he just comes <laughs> off as a shady dude anyway and plays that really well. But I think that this is this is definitely we're picking up on that undercurrent of this. Okay, so while we I, I decide I I looked up twenty fifth amendment and section four of the twenty fifth amendment is what we would be talking about called declaration by vice president and principal officers. It says uh, when the VP and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, so that's the cabinet, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, which definitely our movie's president is currently in. The vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. It actually says they're acting president. But that vote has to take place, and then the the, the transference of title takes place, even if temporary. But, I mean, that still required a, a majority vote, and then the, the conference of the title, even if it's a temporary, onto the vice president. Yes, a majority of, it says, the principal officers of the executive department or other such body as Congress may by law provide. So, yes, that's, that's the cabinet voting a majority, yes. Which must have happened behind the scenes then. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or there's well, the, a coup. The I also have an issue is you can almost see for a second, it doesn't look like a letter of pardon. It looks like something you printed to give your two or your second grader the certificate that came out of the printer for you were a good reader this month because it's got the little border and it looks like that's sort of like the pseudo fake border within the page as if like that's a frame. So I didn't buy it at all. I'm thinking you just went down to like Staples and bought some... You know, you print this, print it out your your own pardon. Here you go. There's no seal on it. I mean, obviously we don't see it directly, but it doesn't look like a letter of pardon. It's really just the blanks for the employee of the month certificates. <laughs> you just exactly. printed it out. <laughs> quick, bring me a stack of those things we don't use anymore because nobody gives a shit. I gotta I gotta give a pardon out here really quick. <laughs> <laughs> Throw a bunch of lorem ipsum sosos, little Latin in there. We'll make it yeah, sound right. official. He won't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just wave it around. He gets it. <laughs> I mean, Snake doesn't even get a chance to look at it. You know, he goes, here, give it to me. He's like, what, do you think I'm a fool? You would think you'd at least want to read the document just to see what it said. Yeah, right. At the beginning of Tomorrow's Minute, he's, he's like, let me see. He's like, I'm no fool, Pliskin. Yeah, he doesn't even let him look at it. I'm sorry if I'm jumping. Because <laughs> ah, right. he shows it to him. I guess I'm, he asks for it tomorrow, but he goes to show it, but he never actually offers it to him at the end of this minute. He just lays it down. Right. You know, and I mean, I know it's a movie. We got to get moving. We don't. But you get older and you start going, wait a minute. <laughs> why? Are we, why wouldn't we do it in a different order? But 
It also creates that sense of urgency. We don't have time for you to think about this. We got to get going. And Molly, here is where once again, Hauk refers to this as a small jet. So I once again bring up my objection to referring to Air Force One as a small jet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, Again, 4,000 square feet is not a small jet. And again, now he knows it's Air Force One. I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> I'm not sure. The only reason he's saying a small jet is because he's waiting 10 seconds to build up the tension when he tells Snake in tomorrow's minute that the president was inside. If he says Air Force One went down, it's like, you know, Hulk loses his ability to give a little bit of a, hey, and guess who it was that was on the plane? yeah. Yeah, and that goes back to Hulk being a little underhanded here. Because we all know, you know, that it's Air Force One. We all know that it's the president. We all know that it was a a pretty big hot damn deal. But of course, Hulk is downplaying that, I think, because he understands that he really needs Snake and Snake doesn't give a shit. It is weird because I know it will transition into tomorrow, the rest of the story. But right now, as we end, if let's say this is where the movie stops for 24 hours, it doesn't sound like it's anybody maybe like a business person, because when I hear a small jet went down, I'm thinking like a Learjet, a corporate jet. I'm certainly not thinking of a 747 outfitted to be the, you know, the president's limo to take him from country to country. Yeah, I'm thinking of Buddy Holly. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, the only thing I'm going to say is I'm so happy that Lee Van Cleef was brought in to be in this. I know there was some discussion about who they wanted to get to play Hauk, and I just love his voice and his delivery. And every time I go through this, I imagine, what if it had been some other actor trying to make these lines work? And something about the way Lee Van Cleef does it, whether it's that cold stare and that sort of, you know, he's got the, the sunken cheeks, that sense of, I've been around the block a lot, and mm-hmm. his, his voice, you don't almost, I don't question his motivations. I feel he's being genuine. But the lines themselves, to me, when I just listen to the words, I think these are kind of cheesy lines. They're almost like two-dimensional. And yet somehow when he comes out of Lee Van Cleef, I'm like, oh, okay, that works. (laughs) He just has that level of authority. He owns him. He just he just owns the character. And I love it because it acts as a perfect counterpoint to an extent to Snake Plissken. You know, uh, they both got deeper voices, but he's speaking very clearly where Kurt Russell has decided I'm going to be Batman before Batman and speak in that hush gravel voice. So that's all I had. I just want to do a shout out to Lee Van Cleef. I know you probably chatted about him before, but this is the first minute I get to see him. And, you know, having been a fan of Clint Eastwood movies and and a lot of the other movies that Lee Van Cleef has been in when I was growing up, uh, I know this was later in his career. It was nice to see him in this role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our our guest last week uh, made an an interesting point. I mentioned how uh, Kurt Russell specifically modeled the voice after Clint Eastwood. And our our guest last week said, and, and here he is doing a Clint Eastwood voice sitting across the desk from Lee Van Cleef. Yep. Might as well have, uh, what is it, Fistful of Dollars out here or something. So speaking of other movies, Alan. Uh-oh. Uh, so <laughs> you are the co-host of The Wilder Ride, and so I, I have a question here tying our two movie universes together. How do you think if he were on a plane that crashed, or you know, even forget that, let's say he was arrested and put in there, let's forget the crash, he's arrested and put in there, how would Frederick Frankenstein fair in a Manhattan prison. <laughs> well, first he'd find his, his the, the first guy to be his Igor, because you got to have a right-hand man. Mm-hmm. And, and then he would immediately start looking for all of the uh, biceps and bulging muscles of all the guys that have fallen in combat and create his own bodyguard. 
Because it would have to be at least seven foot something to help with the mask, giving him an, an enormous Schwanstucker, because that goes without saying. <laughs> and I completely screwed it up. I wanted to say Frederick Frankenstein, and I completely screwed it up, my, the, the whole pronunciation I wanted to do. That's all right. I mean, technically, it's both right. He decides to adopt <laughs> Frankenstein later in the movie, but yes, Frankenstein. Even when Igor goes, you're pulling my leg. You must be joking. Tell us about your show. Give us, give us all, where can people find your show? Yeah, we're doing, very much like this, a Movies by Minutes uh, podcast, but rather than f- going with a franchise, we decided we love the works of Gene Wilder, so we called it The Wilder Ride, and we decided we would look at films of Gene Wilder one minute at a time. For our season one, we already did Young Frankenstein, as you heard Eric allude to, and we uh, for season two, depending when you check out this episode, we may be wrapping up or certainly have just finished Blazing Saddles, and so we're already conspiring what we're going to do for season three. Well, Alan will be with us all week long, so check out The Wilder Ride and stay tuned for the next couple of days. In the meantime, if you want to chat with us, you can chat with us on Twitter, where we are NY Minute Pod, and we have a group on Facebook that we love to hear from you, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. Rate and review us if you like what you hear, subscribe so you never miss an episode, and until tomorrow, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.